Craig-Karan. And I'm Veronica McCarthy. And this is Women of Contradictions. Hi. Oh my gosh. I'm touching you. I know. <laughs> We're together. We're in the same room. <laughs> it's thrilling. <laughs> Veronica is in Seattle. She had a little get together with her. I don't know why I'm telling the people your story. <laughs> I love that you are. I was just nodding along. We're like, yes, tell them my weekend. I'm here for it. Tell me my weekend. <laughs> she was here with her sisters. I was. I had a get together. <laughs> no, why am I? And I'll just keep going. <laughs> why, why are you even here? <laughs> just monologue the whole episode. Yes, I got to see my sisters in Seattle. It was delightful. And then the... The cherry on top, the final night, was um, seeing you recording in person and getting um, snuggles from your girls. So I have a question for you. I am having a hard time with, like, hair styles. Like, I feel like I'm either wearing my hair just down mm. or, like, I currently have it half up. Mm -hmm. I don't know that this works. <laughs> or I put it in a ponytail. And I feel like you get to an age and you're like... Can you wear your hair in like a style? And what I mean by that is like, you'll see like people do like twisty, updoy things or whatever. Yeah. And I feel like I'm past that now, but I don't also know what to do with my hair besides just like wear it down or up. It's like one or the other. Yeah. I hear what you're saying because there are moments that I, I used to wear my hair in braids on top of my head a lot. Mm, mm -hmm. And I remember my mom like a couple years ago was like, we might be past the braids. I also love a half up, half down ponytail with a bow, which sounds strange because I know I'm not that person, Yeah, but I like it done with like a kind of rockerish vibe. And then mm -hmm. you put a bow in your hair and people are confused. And I like that. Yes, I do. I like a bow in my hair too, but I have to be careful because <laughs> some things I wear are like, it goes into tweed yeah, territory totally. if I throw a bow on top of it. But if it's like jeans, sneakers, bow, bow yeah, good. But I just find I'm like, I just feel at a loss of like, how can you, it, like, can you continue to style your hair past a certain age? Or are you, are you just now, have we entered the territory where we wear it down or it is up in like a bun, a bun or I think a low pony or something. I think the first response would be, of course, you can wear your hair any way you want. Yes, yes obviously. Yes. But it's like that idea with clothes. Like, yeah. can women of a certain age wear a skirt above their knees? And people will be like, of course they can. You should be able to wear whatever you want at any right. point. But there is this like other layer to that being like, I want to age in a way where I look young for my age and not like I'm trying to look young for my age, which is a very yes. complex thing to even unpack. And, and I feel like when you see people wearing the like complicated where they're like twisting their hair and they're pulling it out and there's a thing and it's like a, you see them on like your reels like, yeah. and everything. And it's like, try this hairstyle. To me, I'm always like, that feels like something for the youth. <laughs> <laughs> that you do to get ready to go out. Yeah. And I'm, I don't, I, I've yeah. moved on from this, but then I feel bored with my hair situation. I feel like the complicated hairstyle died along with the going out shirt. 
Mm. Remember the going out shirt you oh, wear? Yes. Oh, okay. I know <laughs> she, it well. She closed her <laughs> eyes to be like, oh, yes. I feel like I had many a good time in the going out shirt. God, I still I still have a few in my closet and I'll flip by them with fond <laughs> memories. And they also like still quietly reek of those nights. <laughs> the smell of cigarettes yes. and CO. <laughs> exactly. But I do feel like I stopped doing my hair in a certain elaborate yes. fashion at the same time that I stopped wearing going out shirts. Fair, fair. So I'm stuck with my two hairstyles. <laughs> is your answer. <laughs> That's the visual yes. cue right now. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is a to be continued conversation. Fair. It's fair. a good question though. I like okay. it a lot. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, should we get yeah, into Let's things? do it. Three things. Do Who's it. going first? I can go first. Okay. Let me pull these bad boys up. My first three thing is beige flags. Have you? No, I, I, I do know about it now. (laughs) (laughs) Britt knows about it because I gave her a one hour head start. And I was like, think of your beige flag. And she's like, what's that? I'm like, this is what a beige flag is. It was a trend on TikTok that originated from this idea that sometimes when you scroll on a dating profile, you get to the end of the dating profile and you're like, you are, I know nothing about your personality. You've done a very poor job of showing your personality. It has now morphed into this trend on TikTok where people say stuff about their partner that is a quirk and not a red flag. It's a beige flag. An example would be, um, somebody said, my boyfriend's beige flag is that he thinks he's a ways influencer. (laughs) What's a ways in W A Z E? Do you know what ways is? No. Oh. Oh no. <laughs> this is why this is why I keep you around. Because <laughs> you, if you live in a place like Seattle, you might get left behind. Yes. <laughs> this is why I live in New York because I'm terrified <laughs> to get left behind. Fair. That's yeah. Fair. Um, Waze is an app that like basically gets you from point A to Oh! Okay. <laughs> the map. Okay. I'm not that behind. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, this person, her boyfriend thinks he's a waves, a ways influencer, which I'd love to know what that is, but that's his beige flag. Another beige flag. Um, my girlfriend's beige flag is that she doesn't know her lefts and rights. She still has to do the L shape with her hands. Okay. That's funny. Okay. Right. Now that I read those two, I'm like, I had asked Britt an hour ago, please think of your partner who yeah. I adore dearly. What would be his beige flag? And this is also off of the conversation that our, um, husband and boyfriend are in a support group for women of contradictions who talk about their partners (laughs) in a public form. (laughs) But I didn't, I couldn't think of anything for his beige flag. Oh my gosh. There's so many, there's so much for normal marital hatred. No, there's, (laughs) but there's like things that are, it's, it's not in neutral. It's like, it's either like, Oh my gosh, I cannot stand this about you. Mm. Or it's, like I love this about you. Mm-hmm. I, I I couldn't think of like a medium thing that's just like kind of annoying. I know that they're there. Yeah, maybe we'll have to come back to this. Yeah, this is everybody think of their partners or you know dating person's beige flag. Yeah. Um. Well, now I feel bad because I definitely have one for mine. I know. I well, I know what he would say about mine. Oh, what me. would he say about you? I like have this weird habit of leaving my socks all over the house. <laughs> like, there's just socks everywhere and it drives him crazy you're such a tidy person i know but i just take off my socks and then they stay there oh i think one of what um andrew would say about me is i leave cupboards open 
Mm. I don't close a cupboard. And at first when he told me that, I was like, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) I I got so defensive about the sock thing when he pointed it out. And then I realized I'm like, there are socks everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) And I kept waking up in the morning being like, (laughs) why are all these cupboards open? Who left the cupboards wide open all night? It was me. (laughs) It was you. Well, you know what? This is nice. Yeah. I hope you feel better. We have not, we have not shamed you. We have shamed ourselves. Exactly. Um, All right. My second thing of the week is a disturbing thing for some. So I heard this on a podcast recently that featured Lisa Dowmore, who is a clinical psychologist who specializes in the development of girls. And she is a huge sleep proponent, which you and I are on the sleep train. And she really believes that um, sleep not only impacts our mental health for ourselves, but also the health of a familial or friend or working relationship that if you are, you know, not getting the sleep that you need, it's going to have repercussions outside of that. And she talked about on this podcast, a ritual podcast that we'll link to in the show notes, that there is now data saying that you, we kind of knew this already, but the data now shows that you don't get as good of sleep in a room where there's technology in it, including your phone. And the interesting piece of this is that they now researchers are surmising the reason why that is that we is that we are so Pavlovian attached to our devices that if they are near us, we have to quietly exert energy to not engage with them, even when we're unconscious. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and terrifying. Totally. And at first I was like, well, that's bullshit. And then I did start to think about it when I would wake up in the middle of the night and have my phone on my nightstand uh-huh. There was a part of me that was like, you could get a dopamine hit right now at three in the morning. Oh, really? See, I don't, I never want to reach for my phone because oh, really? I knew, I know when I reach for my phone, it's game over. Like I'll see more, less of what will be on my phone and more that I will know what time it is. Mm. And then I'll start doing the thing where you're like, well, I have this many hours of sleep or like whatever, you know? So yeah. I just, I do not look at my phone at night. Unless it's like, I don't know. I think there's an emergency. There are like someone's meant to call or I have no idea. It's just, it doesn't really happen. You have more self-control than I do. <clears throat> Every time I wake up, I look at my phone in case someone texts really? me. Not out of an emergency, but out of how popular am I? <laughs> uh, my third thing of the week is... Samantha Irby, which I don't think we've talked extensively about, but she's a writer that I love. She has books of comedic essays, personal comedic essays that are David Sedaris, but even more personal if possible. And more, she says the things that we're all thinking in a way that you're actually, when you read it, you're like, Oh, thank God. And also terrified that someone's admitting this. Okay. She's fantastic. Um, I want to say she's on like book four or five now of personal essays. Her most recent one came out quietly hostile and the New York times recently interviewed her for it. And she just, it's it's a great interview that we will link to. And I just want to pull up something that I loved that she kept repeating throughout the interview. And that was flattening the experience. And she said it in regards to two things. She said it in regards to bodies and in regards to the pursuit of happiness in context for the bodies, she talks about quite openly that she is overweight and she has Crohn's disease. And that's just like a fact of her life. Mm -hmm. And when they asked about the body positivity movement, she Mm -hmm. says, I don't think we all have to love our bodies. It flattens the experience of having one because they don't all work the same. Hmm. And I just loved her honesty around it. And that again, she like gives room for all. Yeah. And then another part where she uses that same phrase is that she was asked about the idea of should everybody 
pursue happiness. And she said, when you flatten everything into be happy, it's like, what does that mean? It means a different thing for you than it does for me. And you can never get there. For most people, the answer is no. The dishonesty behind positivity grates on my nerves. (laughs) I just loved that. The dishonesty behind positivity grates on my nerves. Oh, the idea that you're going to be happy and positive and you know, live in the clouds all the time is just so unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And, and those people highly create. <laughs> yeah. Because also not only are they just leaving in their happy clouds, they're like, come be in the happy clouds yeah. with me. Like, and I don't like, want to be in those fucking clouds. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Anyway, those are my three things. That sounds great. I can't wait to dive into a few of these things that I have been unaware of. Love it. Okay. For my three things, I'm going to start with, some real estate porn mm-hmm. because you and I bring it on. We love the real estate. Um, the first one, and I'm going to do two because I know not everyone loves the UK as much as I do. <laughs> you said that with your hands like folded in a way that was so British. So I was like, wow, she really, the UK is just like brought into the room and she assumes the UK yeah. position. <laughs> So the first one is called Inigo House, and they actually have a sister company called The Modern House. And it's homes that you can buy, but I prefer Inigo because they're older homes. They're Mm. often historical homes, Mm -hmm. and they are just gorgeous. It's a very curated real estate website. Not anybody can have their house basically listed with them. And it's so good. They're beautiful. The interiors are amazing. And they often include, and we've talked about this, the floor plans. And I need a floor plan. Yeah. I need to know where I am within 100%. this house that I might be buying. Don't you dare <laughs> list a house property without a floor yes. plan. Yeah, that's like insanity to me. It's But they do... I feel like most listings... Like in Seattle, they, they're better in New York. But in Seattle, you rarely find a floor plan with a house listing. It's infuriating because in this home that I'm not actually going to buy, but I'm going to think about buying and like think about how I would configure 100%. where I'm going to be, what rooms the girls would have, the guest bedroom, What's the flow. Oh, this bathroom doesn't make sense. I'm going to tear this yeah. wall down and put this here. I need load bearing yeah. walls. I need to know where the plumbing yes. is. It would be like buying a car without knowing the mileage. Like it would just, it would not make any logical sense. No, but we don't. I don't. I wonder if people go on websites for cars the way we do with houses that they we're not do. actually going to buy. They 100% do. And okay. I know that for a fact because I just bought a used car and I learned from my one of my boyfriend's best friends. That's what he does. It's called bringatrailer.com. And it's like used cars that have appreciated in value due to X, Y, and Z reasons. And these... <laughs> And I, uh, we bid on a couple used cars and people are in the comments, like a Reddit section, watching the bidding going up on no. a car they will never buy. Oh, crazy. I loved it. Okay. Well, <laughs> so everybody has their kinks. Okay. And then the other one for those who are not as interested in UK real estate is one that you introduced me to called buying upstate. And it's also real estate and it's gorgeous. I, I don't think I fully appreciated how, how historical the homes in New York, which sounds ridiculous, how historical the homes in New York would be, mm-hmm. but they're really old for the for the U.S. Yes. standards. Really old, like you know, some of these places date back to like they'll have an outbuilding that's like from the 1600s, and I'm blown away by this. And they're just again, it's very curated, all beautiful interiors, 
and dreamy landscapes. There's just a character and a weight to the home. Yes. We've talked about this where has a gravitas, <laughs> which we love that word these days. We keep like pausing and looking at each other and being like gravitas. <laughs> That's what that's our goal in life is to have gravitas <laughs> in that way. Um, but you can guess what these houses have upstate. You know, you just you don't find that masonry work in a new build. I hate to say it. You don't. It's craftsmanship, and we just don't. Unless you've got the money, mm-hmm. and it costs a lot of money, you just don't get that anymore. Mm-mm. Anyway, so real estate addicts out there, have fun with those sites. Um, okay, my second one is something I saw on the Hollywood Reporter. So in this one particular roundtable, it was Devery Jacobs, I believe, is a young actress of Reservation Dogs. And then Cheryl Lee Ralph, who's been around forever. I'm going to play this clip of the conversation that transpired, and then we'll be right back. I want to respectfully um, just say that for us, we call ourselves Indians, but for other people, I would say indigenous or, indigenous or Native people. American. Or, yeah, with, I say that with all the love. because Listen, I, I respect you. that because yeah. one of the things that doesn't happen is the greater communication for people to understand and know, yep. you know, and then it gets, it's sort of like you can be black and it's like you've been colored, you've been Negro, you've been Afro-American, you've been African-American, you've been black. It's like, okay, which one, which one are we? If you don't have the conversation with people, they don't know. And I get it. Indigenous people. Okay. So what I loved about this was Cheryl, Cheryl Lee Ralph said something that was incorrect. And Devery Jacobs, who is an indigenous woman said, Hey, You know, you heard what she said. And I just thought it was such a perfect way of someone using language that someone else does not appreciate or Mm -hmm. like, then gently correcting them, her reciprocating that correction and not being offended and not getting defensive about it. And it was, I was like, this is how it should be done because we're not always going to say the right things at the right time all the time you just experienced the other weekend Mm -hmm. you know or the other week when you misuse the pronouns like but your intention was not bad Mm -hmm. your intentions were good and you said you know what you said and I just feel like we need to allow space for this and I thought this was such a great example of that happening and we just need to be better about this and and not get defensive and yeah could not agree more and the fact that this like also happened in person and it was able to be addressed in the moment in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I've thought about this a lot and we've talked about this, the idea that you can use the wrong word, but what was the intention under the word? And then how do you course correct when somebody corrects you? Do you get defensive and mad or do Mm -hmm. you like allow for that correction and then continue to try? Yeah. I definitely find that I think a lot of the people that are, frustrated and mad at being asked to use a different pronoun or or use a different terminology mm-hmm. is because they're actually scared at I don't know they're, they're scared at the shame that might be around it as yeah. well as opposed to being like I'm gonna try and I'm yeah. gonna try my best I'm gonna keep trying until I get it right yeah no completely and so I just I thought that it was such a great example of that happening and I I wanted to share that All right. For my last thing, a very fun thing. We are 
one month away from <laughs> the Barbie premiere. The count, the countdown's on. <laughs> and I'm very excited about it. Same. And Architectural Digest does these, you know, behind this, like you open the door and like a celebrity or somebody shows you around. It's the fancy stage. version of MTV Cribs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's MTV totally the Crib. highbrow version. Yeah, exactly. And so they did it with Barbie and it's absolutely brilliant. They show you all around the Barbie set and everything was considered. It's really amazing actually that this thing has been built and it, I'm like, I want a Barbie dream house again. <laughs> I mean, you have you have daughters of the age that you could just buy it, quote unquote, for them. Yeah. And it's actually for you. I, I, it might be happening this summer <laughs> after watching this video. I was like, I got, felt very nostalgic about all the little Barbie things. And it's just, it makes me very excited for the film because I think they have really thought about everything and it doesn't feel like, I don't know. It feels very considered. It doesn't feel like a ploy. It feels like Greta Gerwig has done her extensive homework. And I, I believe it's in good hands with her. Like just the way that she talks about the color pink. I'm like, yes. oh my gosh, I love you. Yeah, so much was thought thought through. And Margot Robbie seems like such a good primary Barbie. But then you have all these other Barbies. And did you know that Gal Gadot was originally who Margot Robbie wanted to play Barbie? Because Margot Robbie's producing it. So Greta she- Gerwig. You mean? No, Margot Robbie is producing it with her production company. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so Margot Robbie went after Gal Gadot originally for Barbie. Oh, interesting. She didn't think it was going to be her at all. Like, she didn't see it in her. And she said uh, Gal Gadot was Barbie because she is, like, this beautiful, charismatic woman who, like, you still love. Like, you're not intimidated by her. You still want to be her best friend. And that's who she was looking for in the starring role of Barbie. Oh, interesting. And then I forget why Greta, or, uh, well, why Gal Gadot turned it down. But I'm not sure who eventually convinced Margot Robbie to take on the role, whether it was the studio, Greta Gerwig, a a mix of both. But yeah, it was, that was the first one that she thought of, which I think is interesting because now that Margot Robbie is Barbie, I'm like, who else could ever play her? Impossible. Totally. It's, yeah, it just, it all looks so good. The co- they talk about the costumes and Barbie has Chanel, which is amazing. <laughs> it's the best. I also think that they're doing such a good marketing job so on this good. film. Like the fact that they did this for AD is yeah. such a smart, interesting way to captivate a different type of audience that Absolutely. might not have seen Barbie movie. But now I feel like architectural people who love like a 1960s thing Mm -hmm. is going to be like, Oh, I want to see this movie for like this design purpose. It's so smart. Yeah. The marketing is brilliant. And so we're, we're definitely, we're on the Barbie bandwagon. We're going to do a movie review. (laughs) Here's my question. Will you be wearing Barbie core? No, (laughs) I don't own anything pink. You know that there's not a single pink thing. I don't think I'll have to check. I don't think I own a single pink thing. Nothing pink. I actually ordered a light pink t-shirt and I sent it back. I put it on my body like a week ago. I put it on my body and I was like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> Meanwhile, I have a number of hot pink. I am here for Barbie core. I, I very much embrace millennial pink, which I probably shouldn't have because that is also the color of my skin. So now that the pink that we have is this hot pink and I can actually pull off, I am, I'm going all in. Um, so you, you might be seeing it. Maybe we need to have a outfit of contradiction. Oh my gosh. A hundred percent. We put Veronica in pink. Oh no. <laughs> I ruined the day.
and we're talking about one of my favorite and least favorite things. <laughs> Talk about a contradiction. Totally. We're talking about alcohol. And funny enough, typically in these like um, the bigger conversations we have in episodes, we do like a little bit of outlining, a little bit of back and forth. And I kept trying to sit down and outline my thoughts around alcohol. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like too overwhelming. <laughs> Were you having a nervous breakdown in my bedroom or in the guest bedroom? I mean, I, yes, that was one of many. I had been wanting, I had been wanting to talk about and write about alcohol for a while, not just my relationship with it, but maybe my history with it, my familial history with it. Mm-hmm. And it had been overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I have like 10 half outlines. <laughs> so sometimes you just really have to rip the bandaid yeah. off and like been like okay I've thought about this enough obviously yeah. maybe I should have a conversation around yeah. it uh, and I guess I'll give background and context yeah. and then we can go from there but I am re-examining my relationship with alcohol and have been doing so for I want to say like a year and a half now maybe and it's been a confluence of events that has led me to wonder how much that this is helping or hurting me. Mm-hmm. And said events are my father. He passed in September and lost his battle with alcoholism, which is an entire different conversation, book, <laughs> movie, <Yeah. laughs> um, TV show. Like, you know, that's fodder for a, a, a big part of what brews inside of me. Um, but even more so than my father's passing was me starting to realize how much my identity was wrapped up in alcohol Mm -hmm. and how much that identity was not actually me, but a numbed out version of myself that wasn't actually participating and feeling life to its fullest. And by that, I mean, I have been drinking since I was I mean, I had my first drink when I was 16. I've been regularly drinking since I was 18. And I already have a personality that likes alcohol. Mm -hmm. I'm not somebody who can like have a drink. I'm somebody who, when she has a drink, then the night is a drinking night. Mm. And I'm somebody who has one night that is a drinking night. And then the next night I want to have a drinking night. And then the next night I want to have a drinking night. I like drinking nights. Mm -hmm. And what do you like about drinking nights? I like that they make existence easier. Mm. Like the pain that I think I consistently try to ignore is more easily ignored. Mm. And I used to use the excuse with alcohol that I felt more when I drank because think about it. Like when you drink, you get in fights more emotions inhibited. Yeah. Emotions are heightened and everything. And as a, someone who isn't creative and a writer, I use the excuse that like I tapped into my emotional Mm. availability with alcohol and I'm slowly coming around to the idea that that was actually not (laughs) the right emotional availability. Yeah. It was actually the 
side of me that is like the darker side of me that doesn't need more fuel. Like I don't need to pour more gas on that fire. That fire already exists. And when I put gas on that fire, it is a part of me that I'm not like the most happy with. So to go back to my history with alcohol, I drank in college. I continued to drink after college and then I moved to New York and then I really started to drink in New York and I moved to New York when I was 28 and from 28 till COVID I was a heavy drinker and by heavy, I mean, I drank every night and I couldn't tell you a night that I wasn't having at least a glass of wine and I didn't think twice about it. It was just, I honestly thought about it in the sense of, this is what it means to be an adult. This is what adults do. This is what I've earned as adulthood. This is, this is what I get to do because I do all the other things that keep me alive. Mm-hmm. I.e., like I have health insurance. I have a job. Mm-hmm. I have all these other things. So I'm allowed to drink at night to quiet the demons. Yeah. <laughs> and then COVID hit and I ended a relationship. I moved into my own apartment And I remember thinking to myself, you should really try to go a night without drinking. And I remember we talked about it. And I remember you asking, like, what is it about drinking? And I don't think I was that honest about it at the time because I wasn't honest about it with myself. Mm -hmm. And I told you, I like something in my hands. Mm, I remember you saying that. Yeah. And I was like, have a tea. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that's what you said. But it's true. Like, if anybody's ever worked with me, either in an office or on set, they know that I always have a cup of coffee in my hands. I have to have something in my hands. It grounds me. Mm -hmm. And you said, have a cup of tea instead of a whiskey. Mm -hmm. And I started having tea (laughs) and I changed your life. (laughs) You didn't not change my life. I'll tell you that much because I also, I remember making my first cup of tea and like dipping the tea bag in and out and being like, what the fuck is happening right now? (laughs) And like, honestly berating myself and being like, this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> and yet, what do you drink every night before bed now, Veronica? Fucking tea! <laughs> oh, wow. Who would have thought? Yeah. And so I was in an apartment by myself for the majority of COVID. And I started drinking tea. And I realized that, like, oh, this feels good. And it was the first moment that I realized I could go three days. I could go four days. I could go Mm. five days without drinking. And what did my body feel like? What did my emotions feel like? They felt good, but they were also fucking frustrated. And I, and I don't know, I haven't, I will admit having this conversation. I haven't had, I haven't gone to AA before, not only, um, Actually, I went to one Zoom meeting for um, families of alcoholics when my father was um, in this last year of his life. And I just knew I needed like to have a level set Mm -hmm. moment. But so I haven't had a lot of conversations with other people in this space. But I just don't. It's few and far between that I see moments where someone says, Yes, I'm drinking less. And yes, it fucking sucks. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Like everybody's like, yeah, I drank less and like life is better. Yeah, life is better. Rainbow starts shooting out of my ass. (laughs) You know? And I'm like, 
yeah, I'm drinking less. My skin is better, mm-hmm. which is like rainbows shooting out of your ass. <laughs> We have another episode on skin. (laughs) We have a whole other episode on skin. So yeah, the skin is better and that does feel fucking fantastic. And my sleep is better. And there are a lot of things about my life that I feel alive for the first time. Like I feel, um, I feel like I'm feeling the breath of human emotion for the first time since I was a child. I'm feeling the highs and I'm feeling the lows in ways that I haven't felt in a long time. I think what alcohol did for me personally is someone who was very, I was very afraid of emotion and what alcohol did was dampen the extremes and kept me small. And sort of just kept you on like a, a, a medium. Yeah. Length. It was like, Oh, if the, the pendulum swings smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I, mm. I was able to, handle those small like swings of the pendulum and when this pendulum started to swing into extreme joy or Mm -hmm. into extreme grief I would reach for alcohol to bring it closer to center because I was so afraid to feel which that's fucking deep (laughs) (laughs) but it feels ironic to say because I feel like so many people reach for alcohol in the moments of celebration or they Mm -hmm. reach for alcohol in the moments of grief and they think they are reaching for alcohol to feel more of those things. Mm -hmm. And I think what actually happens is you feel less Mm -hmm. because you are less present and the less present you are. I do believe the less you like feel on a bigger, deeper level. Yeah. So This is very off the cuff to say that I haven't stopped drinking. I still drink. I drink a lot less and I am slowly unbraiding myself and, and untwining. Like, I don't know what's unraveling Mm -hmm. my identity from somebody who believed her worth in the world was her ability to drink. Well, I think you, you liked going into a space and you liked being the girl who sat at the bar and 100%. like got the whiskey. And I, I mean, I, I did too, like as a, as a whiskey drinker, like I, I liked that I wasn't, you know, ordering the cosmopolitan, although I, a cosmopolitan can be very fun at times, but like, being like, yeah, I can handle this fucking whiskey. And there's a romantic notion about it. Like yeah. there's this thing, there was actually an article in the New Yorker, which I will link to that was a satirical essay that was fucking brilliant. And it was one of those essays that I think you'll understand. Do you know when you read something and you're like, why the fuck didn't I write yes. this? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, this is from me. Yeah. Anyway, it's like a, you know, 200 word essay about, what happens when I walk into a bar when I order a whiskey in my head? And it was like, <laughs> the bartender immediately falls in love with me. Like, Oh, that's so brilliant. People stumble over their feet to try to talk to me. <laughs> I give them one word answers. They want more. I give them nothing. And it was like this like, beautiful picture. And then like oh the ending was like, someone asked me to marry them. I walk out and say, maybe. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so you. I know. <laughs> that's amazing um but that's literally the romantic notion that happened in my head every time i ordered whiskey neat at a bar (laughs) oh that's brilliant uh but at the end of the day i'm still wrestling with a lot of the things around alcohol because i still live in new york 
that is a city that is driven by connection over alcohol. Mm -hmm. There are other ways to have connections in New York. You can go on walks, you can get coffee, there are museums, there are, you know, tons of physical activities you can do in New York from yoga, jujitsu, like I'm saying all these things that I'm like aware of now because I was not aware of them like two years ago when I was heavily drinking. Like what else do you do in New York yeah. except for drink? <laughs> there are other communities apparently in New York that oh. exist that don't drink, but it is the de facto thing to connect. And I am someone who loves community and I love group dynamics mm -hmm. and group dynamics rarely happen over a walk. Yeah. <laughs> You rarely see six people walking and busting balls yeah. and just like dying of laughter. You see six people busting balls and dying of laughter over a pint of beer. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, yeah, it's the alcohol, the situation around alcohol, I feel like has changed so much recently because mm -hmm. we've become so much more aware of the negative effects of alcohol. Not that we, we've known for a while, you know, that it's not, the best for you in excess. But I think there's within this idea of turning more into our interior, our interior, excuse me. Um, it's the way it affects our mental health. And so I think there's been a real shift in that. And I feel like so many people are now not drinking, like becoming teetotalers. And I'm so, I, I have, I have mixed feelings about that. I, I don't like doing, I don't like, I like everything in moderation. It's like very much my thing. I don't like being, I don't like restricting myself in anything. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I, there is something to me that feels, I fully appreciate that people have addiction issues and you can be an alcoholic and you just cannot have alcohol. And I, I fully understand that. But I think that there are lots of people who, maybe drink more than they should, but could restrict if they wanted to. I, it's that community aspect. And I think like a, almost like the cultural aspect, like when I think of people in, I don't know whether it's at a karaoke bar in Japan or it's at a pub in the UK or a cafe in France, it's alcohol that is, you know, the connection there. And it doesn't, I, there's part of me that's like, well, it doesn't have to be in excess. Like you can order a pint and you can sip on that pint for like, I don't know, two hours. Um, and I guess the argument could be, well, why couldn't it be like a soda water? But it's, it's different. Like there's something different. There's like a brilliant um, Larry David then. Oh my God, I was just thinking about the coffee. Yes. yes. Oh my God, the minute you said that, I was like Larry David and coffee and his yes. wife. Yeah. Comedians in cars getting coffee, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David are talking and Jerry asks Larry about like kind of the reason for the divorce. <laughs> and he basically was talking about how he stopped drinking coffee. And that was like their ritual in the morning was that they would have coffee together and he switched to tea. And it just like isn't the same thing as drinking coffee. And it was, I'm not doing it justice because how can you do Larry David justice? Don't even I'll, try. It's I'll fine. link to it. Yeah. It's fucking hilarious. And such like an astute observation, obviously. And I, I do think there is something about that where you like go into a bar and you are 
it's different. There's something different when you're not drinking alcohol. It's so fascinating. And there's also this idea, I don't disagree with you, but my other like contradiction to that or pushback to that would be like the person who walks into the bar and decides not to drink. It's not a, it's not their job to make you comfortable with the fact that they're not drinking and you are completely which is that difference. Mm-hmm. And like, it wasn't Larry David's job to make his wife feel comfortable that then he decided to stop drinking coffee. And at the same time, she felt like they were having a different experience yeah. because they were one was taking coffee at the end of the day is like some type of drug. It's yeah. a small, it's a lesser, but it is like an addictive substance that she was participating in. And yeah. she wasn't. And, and he, I think there's something it's like, you're both participating in the sin. It's yes. like, there's something about, well, are you going to have a, uh, I, do you want a drink? I want a drink. You know, there's that like thing that goes back and forth. Like, okay, yeah, let's have a drink. But if you say, oh no, I'm not going to have a drink. Suddenly you're like, oh, well, I guess I shouldn't have one either. Or you feel guilty or whatever. Cause it's like, you know, this thing's not completely good for you and you're making a better choice than I am. And not only is it not good for you. I also think it's that idea of like, I'm letting down more of my guard with every drink I drink and you mm. are not. Cause I also yeah. feel like, you know, when you go out and have drinks with somebody and you're kind of drinking one for one, like you're on the same path. And then there's that third drink and there's kind of those eyes to each other of like, are you going to get another drink? And then if one person gets another drink and one doesn't, like there is that same thing of like, oh, I'm not letting more of my guard down because I am imbibing more in this thing and you're not. So we are going to diverge paths. And now that I've been drinking a lot less, I have been in situations where I have not liked people because <laughs> I have been not going down that path. And I'm like, dear God, is this really you? Like, is this, is this the thing that I've existed with in so many years? And yes. now in sober mode, I'm like, Ugh. oh my gosh, <laughs> when I was, I've been pregnant twice and I did not drink for those, you know, nine, 10 months or whatever. And then you don't really drink. I breastfed. So I wasn't drinking much after that either. Oh my gosh. I was like, I have to like, I tried to hang with situations. Cause I was like, yeah, yeah, let's go out, whatever. And then I would be like, no, I, I can't stand you. I can't tolerate you. And sometimes it was my partner. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like you are drunk and I am sober and this is not fun for me. Yeah. So I'm going to excuse myself from the situation. And you're on totally different planes with somebody yeah. that, and even though if you love that person, you're yes. like, Oh, we are not connecting right yes. now. Yes. And I, it's, it's so interesting. I feel like we drink for very different reasons. Mm. And I don't find that I ever drink to feel something different. I think I drink because I genuinely enjoy how it tastes. Mm. Like, and so I actually don't, I wish I could have like a number of drinks and stay sober because I don't necessarily, I'm, it's been a long time since I've let myself get very, very drunk. I definitely did in my twenties, but I like realized fairly early on, I do not like to get that drunk and feel that way and feel awful the next day. And so I kind of stopped doing that. And I would stealthily (laughs) like let people think I was still drinking, but not drink as much. Like when we would go to bars and stuff, because I just hated how I felt, but I enjoyed the act like the community around it the ambiance and then as like 
as I've gotten older, I really enjoy alcohol as like, I love cocktails. Like I love the mixing of the ingredients and all that kind of stuff. Like I kind of am a little fake bartender at my own house. And like, I love going to cocktail bars, but I genuinely enjoy the drink or like the glass of wine. It's not necessarily what it's doing for me. And in some ways I don't always enjoy that I'm getting intoxicated mm. from it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because then I don't feel good. I have like digestive issues and my skin. Well, you're a sensitive Sally. <laughs> and then I have to wake up in the morning with the kids and it's a whole thing. So I find like I I drink a lot less now because of all those other reasons, but it's not because I felt like I was drinking almost in an unhealthy way, it was just like, oh, this does not make me feel good. And I don't, I don't want to feel bad, but I really enjoy alcohol. So here, here's where I stand with drinking now. And I would love to hear what others think of this and where the healthiness of this lies. But I, I wish I need to find the woman who wrote this article and credit her properly in the show notes, which I will do. But she lives by the three-three-three rule, which I mm. now live by. And I've spoken to you about this. Mm-hmm. But I, the three-three-three rule is no more than three drinks a night, no more than three drinking nights a week, and no more than three consecutive nights of drinking. And if I abide by those three rules it allows me to still get the best of what I love about alcohol, which is a community connection. Mm -hmm. There are moments that I do find if I'm, if done with the right intent, I have a creative experience or if I'm going to a musical performance and I have a drink before the musical performance, I do find that like my mind is able to like relax more into that experience. Like there are moments that I, want to experience alcohol, but with this three, three, three rule, I kind of plan out my weeks and I'm able to, and look, I'm probably trying to have my cake and eat it too. And I recognize that, but for the time being, it's like a good in-between state for me to exist in Mm -hmm. and still have this thing that I like in my life, but not have it in excess for it to destroy my life. No, I think that's a good, I feel like, you know, you know that there's a thing that you could have more of a problem with that you may have had more of a problem with at some point. And you've recognized that. And now you're trying to have a more like healthy balance with that thing. And alcohol is such a funny part of our lives. Like it really is because it's something we've been partaking in for thousands of years as human beings. And, and before alcohol, I feel like it was other substances that also altered our state of mind. Yeah. And like seeking out substances for alternate states of mind for existence in memoriam. Yeah. And yet we feel this, I don't know, there, there's a lot of guilt around alcohol. I think especially at the moment of drinking and not drinking and drinking too much. And I'm, I I think it's good that we're examining it. I think there was like a long period of time where we didn't examine it at all. And a lot of people really quietly suffered and that's 
obviously not good. But then I also, I, I think this is where it's going to be different for everyone and it's going to look different for everyone. And I think that we just have to be accepting of that fact and that like, your reasons for drinking and my reasons for drinking are two very different things. And you not drinking or me not drinking is not a reflection on either of us. And we just, we just need to be okay with, with all of those versions, you know? And I think as long as your reasons for drinking are ones that you feel good with and comfortable with, then that's okay. Like you can drink alcohol and maybe that means drinking every night for you. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but maybe drinking every night for you was a bad thing, you know? And I think we just need to be accepting of all those variations as long as we're being honest with ourselves. Mm -hmm. It goes back to Samantha Irby and don't flatten the experience mm. <laughs> <laughs> to do a quiet callback. Yeah. I guess I have wanted to speak about this and write about this for a while because I haven't heard a lot of people say like, oh, I'm drinking less and it fucking sucks. And mm. my life hasn't turned the corner of being a brilliant times better. It's turned the corner of, oh, Okay. I can survive in this world as well. Yeah. And I can feel a little bit more. And just that little glimmer has been enough for me to like keep walking down this path. Mm -hmm. And that feels more real and relatable to me than the, oh, I'm so happy my life is perfect now. Yeah. So if those people are out there, <laughs> please connect with Veronica. <laughs> <laughs> Would love to hear about your path and journey, obviously. <laughs> and in the meantime, I'll be abiding by the 333 rule until otherwise noted. And I'll just be occasionally drinking and having tea every night before that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for tea. <laughs> Find us on Instagram at Women of Contradictions. Sign up for our newsletter at womenofcontradictions.com. Or drop us a note at hello at womenofcontradictions.com. Till next time. Ciao.